We have a couple more weeks that we are going to learn how to read the Bible better. And so again, as last week and then one more week, they're going to be a little bit different than a typical sermon. More of a lesson, but nevertheless, the lesson will help us to know how to read the Bible better. If we're better Bible readers, then we can also obey the word better. You don't read a text the same way that you read a textbook, do you? And I guess you can look at the text there. I guess it's from a mom who's very nosy. Are you on a date? Yes. Can't talk now. I'll let you know how it goes. Is he cute? What kind of shirt did he wear? If you want that Chinese, went to that Chinese place, get the egg roll appetizers. They're great. Ask him if he likes kids. You can see moms can be very persuasive, very nosy. But my point is, you don't take a text that you get on your phone and read it the same way you would read a textbook. You don't read a magazine the same way you read a love letter. A magazine, you just flip through it to look at the pictures. You take out all the little cards that are in there and throw them out. And you try to ignore all the advertisements in it. But a love letter, you read it carefully. And you try to interpret each and every word and phrase. And you try to smell it to see if there's perfume on it. Or we look at it to see if there's any tears on it. You know, you, you look at it very carefully and read it differently than you do a magazine. You read a comic book different than you do a mortgage contract. If you're reading a comic book, you're just flipping through it, looking at the pictures, trying to get the gist of the story. A mortgage contract, you better at least look at it very, very carefully because you are signing your life away. and You want to make sure that what you are signing, you know what is in the document. Obviously, a comic book's much more enjoyable to read than a mortgage contract with all the whereas and therefores and everything else in there. So my point is you read them differently, don't you? So you read things differently based on what type of literature it is or what type of writing it is. In the video we just saw, they used the English class fancy word. I love to say it because it sounds so French, genre. It sounds like you're very sophisticated when you say it, genre. And that's just a big English class word for meaning a type of writing or a type of literature. The Bible is exactly the same way. You don't read Genesis the same way you read Revelation. And I think that's where some people do trip up when they're reading the Bible. Because they think sometimes maybe that the Bible is just a, a list of statements in fact, the King James Version kind of lends itself to be read that way because it has all the verses starting all at the edge of the page. So you get chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. It almost looks like here's a statement, here's a second statement, here's a third statement, a fourth statement. These are all propositional statements. Every statement's the same as the other, read the same way as the other, but that's not true. The Bible, just like our writings, from a comic book to a contract to a love letter to a text to a textbook to a magazine, all kinds of different things, the Bible's exactly the same way. It has different types of writings or genres. The Bible, in fact, has several of them, and we're going to look at them this morning. This chart separates the books of the Bible into different types of writings. There are stories there is wisdom or proverbs or how-to. There's the law. There is poetry. There are parables in the Gospels. 
There's prophecy. There's letters. I'm going to add one, apocalyptic, and I'm not going to talk about the law since we've talked about that recently. So I'm going to talk about seven different genres this morning and help you to understand what to look out for so that you can read them better, interpret them better, with the ultimate goal of living it out in your life. Let's talk about story. This is most common in the Bible because that's most common among us. We talk to each other in stories. Sure, we share other information. It's not always a story, but isn't it often when we are shooting the breeze, we're sitting around the table or we're around the water cooler, wherever that is. I guess that's what you're supposed to be if you're in a workplace. You're around there. You're telling stories. Monday mornings, this is what happened to me this weekend. This is what I saw when I watched the game. This is what I saw on television. You were telling a story. Also, when we go to movies and a lot of our entertainment are stories. So you're very familiar with a story, with a narrative. When you read it in the Bible, there's a few things that help you to read it better. Understand what the setting is. Now understand when does it take place? Where does it take place? Who are the people that are in the story? Who are the, the characters? Especially know who the bad guy is and the good guy. Don't you always have that to have a good story? And, and the story, doesn't it always a story kind of begin with uh, an introduction of the characters and the setting, and then there is often some kind of conflict, and then there is action trying to resolve the conflict that all happens in the middle of the story. And then there is the point of the story, which is the high point of the story, where that conflict is resolved. The hero wins, the enemy is defeated, the problem is solved, and then you kind of coast downhill from that to the end of the story. That's a story. And that's what you read when you come to the Bible and you see the stories there. But the Bible, stories in the Bible aren't just there to tell a story. They're there for a reason. So try, as you read it, try to figure out maybe the moral of the story. God put it there for a reason. He wanted to teach us something. And there could be more than one reason why that story's there. And then because it's there and it's teaching a lesson, is that a lesson that you and I need to learn and obey in our life. Let's take a, a very famous story in the Bible that even people who aren't Christians know about, David and Goliath. It's a story that we love to tell to children, that we love to tell as adults. That even as I said, they talk about in our culture, especially when the, the big guy is picking on the little guy. We love to tell this story about how the little guy triumphs and wins over the big guy. It helps to understand the story if you know who the Israelites are, who the Philistines are, that they're enemies. That it also helps to know if you know who David is and about his family, about uh, his father Jesse, about his brothers. The story in the Bible is very lengthy and gives us lots of details about how David was a shepherd and how he stayed at home and how his brothers went off to battle. The story mentions King Saul. Who is he? The more you know about the characters, the more you can understand about the story. And isn't it true that it, it, the story starts out with these characters and then it has a conflict. There is a, a giant 
the enemy who is taunting the Israelite army and is taunting God. And all of the Israelite army is too weak and wimpy to stand up to the giant. Not even the king. But there's a shepherd boy who comes to bring lunch for his brothers. And his brothers accuse him of just wanting to see the battle. You just want some entertainment. That's why you've come. You should be back home doing all the chores. Why are you here? But it introduces us to the good guy, to David who is more than upset that a giant's taunting the army and everyone's too wimpy to stand up to him, but this enemy is taunting the Almighty God. And he won't stand for it. So he is going to fight the giant. And you know how he fights the giant. First he tries to put on Saul's armor at the insistence of Saul. It doesn't fit. He says, I don't need this. What I want to do is fight the giant in the power of the Lord and with what he was used to. A sling and a stone. And he goes out and even then the giant's taunting him, saying, you coming out here to fight me with a dog with sticks and stones? I mean, what have you brought out here to me? And then David says to Goliath that he is going to defeat him in the name of God. And you know that all it took was one stone from his sling right into the giant's forehead. He falls to the ground. Knocked out, David takes the giant sword and cuts his head off and is victorious. He takes the, 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 the head to the army, the Israelites rout the Philistines. He becomes a hero. He becomes uh, famous. And it's, why is this story told? For lots of different reasons. It's a story about David because so much of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and the kings are about David. Lots of stories about him. This one explains how he became so famous and so popular and how the rift between he and Saul starts. It's a story about how we can, with the strength of God, overcome giant obstacles. And so we use that truth a lot in our life. That with God we can overcome anything. It's a story about faith over fear. David had faith that he was going to be victorious. Everyone else was fearful. So there's lots of reasons, lots of things we can learn from it. That's why we love to tell it. So when you read a story, that one or anyone in the scripture, read it in that way. You'll learn the lessons you'll be able to live out the lessons. I love to keep talking about David and Goliath, but let's move on to letters. These are the other things that are um, you're very familiar with in The New Testament, Paul wrote many of them, but James wrote one, Um, Jude, Peter, the writer of Hebrews. So those are letters that are in the New Testament, and they are letters, so we should read them like letters. There were letters that are written to us because it's the Word of God, but there are also letters that were written to a specific church. So therefore, for us to understand the letters, we need to know who the author is who writes them. Most of the time, it's Paul. The more we know about him, his conversion, his circumstances, the more we can understand the standing that he had among the churches. We understand that these letters that he wrote were to churches often, most of the time, churches that he founded or churches he was introducing himself to. That helps us understand why he wrote them. 
If we know more about who he wrote to, that helps us to understand too why he wrote them. Whether it's the, the Corinthians or the Ephesians or the Philippians, whoever these Ippians are, the more we know about their church and about what they were struggling with and this culture in which they lived, we can better understand the letter. When it comes to the letters of the New Testament, every word is important. It's almost like that love letter where you look at each word, each phrase. You even have to get kind of technical and look grammatically at the transitions from one sentence to the next sentence. Paul's letters especially are very logical. This is why sometimes a lot of pastors like to preach from them. Because there's a lot packed into every verse. It's logical. It's one step after another step. But you have to take all of that in and digest it carefully. That's also why sometimes we don't like to spend too much time studying them because they can be very detailed and very deep. But see how you read it differently than a story? A story, you're kind of just looking over the surface, getting the, the gist of the beginning and the middle and the end and the characters and the moral of the story. But here you need to know the questions, the problems, read carefully and, and even think logically and grammatically. That's different than reading a story. Well, let's talk about Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He wrote four, it seems like. Two of them are the Word of God. And when you read them, it's obvious that he's responding to a letter that the Corinthians wrote to him. So 1 Corinthians often has sections of it where Paul is answering a question they had. Unfortunately, we don't have their letter. We don't know what the question was. We have to try to guess or surmise, deduce what they were asking him. But if you know more about Corinth, about how worldly it was, about how it was a metropolis, about how there was everything in our culture here was there in that culture. And these were Christians who were new to their faith, struggling to live out their new faith in a worldly, secular, uh, multicultural, multi-religious society. They were struggling. They were confused. And Paul wrote to them to answer their questions and to help them. And so as you read the letter, you can find in there what they were struggling with, how Paul answered it. So this is how you read a letter, different than a story. Let's talk about a parable. Jesus uses these, although there are a couple of them in other places in Scripture other than from the words of Jesus. When you read a parable, it's different than a normal story. Because a parable always has a point that it's trying to make. Stories do as well. But in a story, it's more about the story. There's details, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, there's characters, there's plot. That's not true in a parable. A parable, a lot of that's stripped out so that you can get right to the point. The parables draw from everyday life. And so the parables are speaking uh, about farming and they're speaking about trees and they're speaking about families and they're speaking about things that the people in Jesus' day dealt with every day. I'm not talking about things far and afield from what they dealt with every single day. 
And the parable has details. And often the details of the parable are symbolic. They stand for something else. And that's where it can be tricky. Because does every detail of the story stand for something? Or are some of the details there just to move the story along? But as I said, every parable has a point. And so it's important to know what that point is. And especially to think about how Jesus told it to his original hearers. Before we think about how we can apply it in our life. He spoke it often to Pharisees, to Sadducees, to to people who were against him, but he wanted to tell them truth. They're purposefully kind of hidden. That he can tell a story, and those who are unbelieving, who are hard-hearted, who don't want to listen, can hear it and not understand it. Whereas those who want to know, who want to know the truth, they can hear it, and they can understand it, and they can believe. Here's a very short parable. In Mark chapter 4, it's in a couple of the other Gospels too, Matthew and Luke. Jesus here is talking about the kingdom of God. In Mark chapter 4, all the parables are about the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of God can be compared to this, it can be compared to that. In these verses he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet, when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. If you look at the parables around it, it becomes clear what this parable is saying. And it's very, a very simple point, which is kind of good because it's a very short parable. Uh, the point is simple. The kingdom of God is going to start out small and it's going to grow. The other parables show us how it's going to start out small and how it's going to grow. But you see how it can be tricky. What about these uh, branches and these birds? What are the birds doing there? I mean, are the birds, do they themselves have a, are they symbolic for something? I think the best way when you come to parables is not to get bogged down in the details. Every word, everything that's in the parable doesn't have to be symbolic for something. If you read commentaries, they'll tell you all kinds of things they think that the birds are symbolic of. It's symbolic of evil or it's symbolic of some type of group or whatever. I don't know. It's confusing to me. I think it's just the fact the tree's so big birds can sit in it and birds can live in it. You don't see too many birds in uh, the tops of trees that are this tall, okay? So I think the parable is simply this. The mustard seed's small. The kingdom of God started out 12 disciples. That's pretty small. It's still growing with billions of people. That's worldwide. It's a global enterprise now. Started off kind of small in one little part of the world. Jesus said the kingdom of God will start out small, but it will grow and it will be large. And that's his point. So, that's how you read a parable. Let's uh, talk about poetry. Poetry is throughout the Bible, but specifically in the Psalms. 
And even some of the prophets are written as poetry, although as we would read them in English, they would not sound like poetry at all. Even the Psalms as we read them don't sound like English poetry. English poetry is uh, rhymes by sounds of words. Roses are red, violets are blue. It goes on like that, all right? I didn't finish it because I forget how it goes, okay? But he rhymes with red and blue. But in, in Hebrew poetry, it has nothing to do with what even what the Hebrew words sound like. And so, of course, if you translate Hebrew words into English, then it certainly doesn't sound like what they would sound like in poetry. But in Hebrew poetry, it's the rhyming of the thoughts. So when you read them, they are the first sentence and the second sentence are connected to each other. Not by rhyming of words, but by rhyming of thoughts. Let me just show you what I'm talking about. Uh, if you come to Psalm 105, 23, it says, Then Israel entered Egypt. Jacob resided as a foreigner in the land of Ham. Do you notice here the first phrase and the second phrase are saying exactly the same thing? But the poetry is saying them differently. Instead of calling Israel Israel in the second phrase, it's the nation is called Jacob. Instead of calling the land Egypt, as in the first phrase, it's called the land of Ham in the second phrase. Remember, poetry is expressive and poetry is creative and poetry is different from a story or from a letter. You're trying to use words and manipulate them to create emotion or use them to create something creative. All poetry, whatever language it's written in, is like that. Often poetry... Uh, creates emotions that you don't get from reading just regular text. Or a word is turned in a certain way that makes you think differently. Notice Psalm 40, verse 4, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Uh, this kind of has three phrases, but really the first phrase is, Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. The second phrase is the opposite of that. Those who look to the proud or turn aside to false gods. So you notice the second part of the poetry is the opposite of the first part. So that's another way in Hebrew poetry. The third verse is taking the first phrase and moving it farther, adding more to it. For the Lord is the great God, the first phrase. The second phrase, the great king above all gods. So if you look carefully when you read the Psalms, you'll see this constantly. Also in the Proverbs, where there's poetry. Either the second phrase saying the same thing as the first phrase, the second phrase saying the opposite, or the second phrase expanding what the first phrase said. One thing we have to be careful with in poetry is hyperbole. It's meant to create emotion. Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9 says, Happy is the one who pays you back what you have done to us. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Again, we don't usually memorize that verse. Okay, I've never saw that in a Wana book anywhere where we're talking about happy is the one who takes little babies and smashes them against the rocks. This psalm is a psalm that is sung by the Israelites who are exiled in Babylon. It's a song where they are grieving. 
It's a song that mentions the fact that the Babylonians taunted them. Apparently, as we can see from the Psalms, the Israelites were excellent musicians and loved to sing and play instruments. And so they would taunt them and the Babylonians would say, play us a song of Israel. Play us a song that you'd sing in Jerusalem. We'd love to hear it. I mean, how, how insulting that is to be told to sing a song of your homeland when you've been taken into slavery and taken away from your homeland. It's a psalm where the prayer in the song is for God to bring judgment and to bring vengeance and for God to do to Israel's enemies what Israel's enemies did to them, smashing their babies against the rock. That's what the Babylonians did to them. This is a song and a prayer that God would do the same to them. Remember, poetry can come from raw emotions. And if you've ever had any time in your life when you were hurt unjustly, I know in your soul you want justice. Of course, God says that He's the one who brings vengeance. But we can certainly pray for God to bring justice and even vengeance as He so desires. And that's how I read many, not many, but some psalms that are like this. It's actual prayers or songs for God to bring down fire and brimstone on people. Okay? We don't usually pray that way. But again, if you are praying out of your emotion when you have been unjustly enslaved or unjustly exiled, unjustly uh, beaten and oppressed and destroyed, I, I think we as humans can understand why someone would cry out to God to do something about it and to bring vengeance to those who brought evil and harm. So you have to be careful as you read the Psalms and understand what you are reading. Let's talk about Proverbs. The big thing about Proverbs is they're short. Isn't that interesting, the big thing about them, the short? I didn't mean to say it that way, but they're short and they have a central truth, a main principle and as I shared, just we talked about the Proverbs this summer, that they are not necessarily promises. So that's the important thing to remember. Here's a couple of examples. A person who is full tramples on a honeycomb, but to a hungry person, any bitter thing is sweet. Isn't that true about life? And it's not just talking about food. Again, this is a principle. It's using food as, an, as a way to teach the principle. Basically, if you're talking about food, if you are full, I could put in front of you your favorite food and it would be disgusting to you. You go without food for four days and I find this uh, uh, piece of gum that I've scraped off the bottom of a pew and you're probably ready to eat it. But it talks more about life in general. That uh, one who is hungry is desperate. And one who is satisfied, often, in this case, kind of reckless or complacent. Proverbs 22, 6, Train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's true. It's not a promise. It's true that children, when they are taught the truth and what is right, and they're led in that way, even if they depart from it, they come back to it. It's hard to come back to something you never had in the first place. But it's not a promise. 
Some children never come back. So has God broken his promise? No, because this isn't a promise. It's a proverb. Remember, proverbs are principles. They're true, but they're not ironclad promises. They're not written that way. They're not intended that way. That's why it's important to know how to read a proverb. Two more, real quick. Prophecy. Often we think a prophecy is talking about the future. Prophecy does, but often it's because it's talking about the present first. If you read uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, and you're reading uh, Obadiah and Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all of those guys, the major prophets, the minor prophets, they're called major prophets because the books are bigger. They're called minor prophets because the books are smaller. And that has nothing to do with major and minor leagues, like the major prophets are the, uh, the major league, and then the minor prophets are the, the JV team, like we were talking about earlier, okay? They're called major and minor because of the size of them. But you read any of them, they, it's important to know who the prophet's speaking to. The more you know about the historical background of the nation at that time and the king at that time and what they're doing at that time and about the enemies that are around them, you can understand the prophet better. And the prophets sometimes to me are, are boring because they're repetitious. They almost always say the same thing. It's God sending his prophet to his people telling them this. You've screwed up. You're sinning. You're running from me. You're not worshiping me correctly. And you know what? You're suffering because of it. And you know what? You're going to suffer even more if you don't repent and turn around. And then he says, almost always, you know what? If you do turn around, there's going to be great hope for you. And there's going to be a great future for you. But even if you don't turn around this generation who's being spoken to, God says, I'm a faithful God. I made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. I'm not going to destroy you as a people. I'm going to preserve you. And one day in the future, you're going to have a a kingdom and you're going to have a, a future that is even greater than you can imagine. And often in those looking forward prophecies, they're looking to Jesus. And they're looking even beyond Jesus when he came to Bethlehem to when Jesus is coming to rule on this earth. So when you read the prophets, look for that. Look for the things they are doing wrong. Look at the way that God is calling them to come back. Look at what God is telling them to do to make it right. And listen for the promise of hope and a future. Obadiah does that. One reason I mention Obadiah is you can read it in five minutes. It is a minor, minor, minor prophet. That's how short it is. It doesn't even have a chapter. It just has verses. But everything I just shared with you is in that little book. In fact, it's not written for the Israelites. It's written for the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And it's a warning to them. Because the Edomites, when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, the Edomites were applauding. They were joining in. They were gloating. And God said, because of that, I'm going to bring you down. The Edomites thought that no one could defeat them where they lived in the clefts of the rock. They thought they would be in existence forever. But God said, no. These are your cousins. These are your 
relatives. You should have helped them. You should have at least weeped for them. But you celebrated and you joined in and you piled on. I'm going to judge you for that. And oh, by the way, the Israelites, the ones that you piled on and despised and joined in and celebrated their demise, one day they are going to rule and they are going to have a future that you can't even imagine. And you know what? How many of you know any Edomites today? <laughs> they don't exist. God's word was true. There are lots of Jews today who have a future even still awaiting them. The last one, the most difficult one, apocalyptic, the book of Revelation, parts of the book of Daniel. These are difficult for a couple of reasons. One, they use lots of symbolism. Symbols are always difficult unless you know exactly what they're referring to. When you know what they're referring to, then it's easy. But when it's just symbolic and symbols, it's confusing. You know the other reason it's confusing? It's in the future. You know that the prophets were confusing to the people who heard them. Confusing to the people up until Jesus came. What did it mean about anointed one, a Messiah. They didn't understand it. It was confusing. It didn't all fit together until Jesus came. Oh, it's obvious. We look back now and read Isaiah. Oh, it's perfectly clear. 2020 hindsight, it's easy to see prophecy because it's happened. The same is going to be true with the book of Revelation. Parts of Daniel that are future. Any part of the Bible that's future, when it happens, it'll be obvious what it's saying. It's just hard for us to understand it. Now, God didn't give it to us to confuse us. In fact, the book Revelation means unveiling. And it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the future. That's where we also get confused when we come to the book. It's telling us about Jesus. And it's telling us that He is the victor. That our future is assured. The victory is assured. Isn't that a, a promising message? Especially to people who are hurting and suffering and are persecuted. As the early church was when John wrote this letter to them. God wanted his people to hear, hang in there. The enemy is not going to win. Satan is not going to win. God, Jesus, is going to be victorious. So just hang in there. And then he gives details of how it's going to happen. The details to us, a little bit confusing. But the overall picture is perfectly clear. Just one thing that we often have fun with, Revelation 13, 18 is an illustration of what I'm talking about. John writes this, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Doesn't our culture have fun with that number? Unfortunately, the, the number that's in the Bible referring to the Antichrist, our culture likes to have fun with. And so, you know, the route 666, if there's such a thing, the signs are taken down. And there's songs about 666, and no one wants a phone number that ends in 666, and all this stuff, right? So what does it mean? I don't know. It'll be clear when the Antichrist is here what it means. So why did John write it? 
So when he's here, it'll be clear who he is. It probably is a way of using a name and turning it into a number. You could do that in English. If you take, if your name was Ashley and it starts with an A, that's one because A is the first letter in the alphabet. S, I don't know what number in the alphabet that is. You figure it out. But you could take the letters of your name and give them a number based on their order in the alphabet. And you could add them up and you would come up with a number. It's easy to turn any name into a number. What's hard is turning a number into a name, right? So maybe that's what's happening here, but maybe it's not. That's what some people believe, and some even believe that in John's day, this referred to Caesar Nero, because he was persecuting the church, and he was an antichrist in John's day, and he is an illustration of the antichrist who will come in the future. But you know what's always hard about turning uh, a number into a name? You almost have to change things or add things. You can almost make anybody's name into 666. That's why I say it's hard to turn a number into a name. Easy to turn a name into a number. Maybe it just simply means that God is perfect. His number seven. I can think of maybe the opposite of seven. It's less than seven, six, six, six. I can think of God's name as a number. I think it'd be seven, 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 don't you? Okay. So instead of being negative seven, 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 I guess it's uh, six, six, six. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe not. Obviously, someone thought Monster Energy, Monster Energy Drink is six, six, six. It kind of looks similar. It's supposed to be the claws of a monster. I did not realize it looks similar to the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there's three of them, six, six cents, six. And it even says, unleash the beast. So who knew that monster energy was the drink of the devil? Did you know that? I did not know that until I found this slide. But I'm just showing this to you to show you how difficult sometimes it is to interpret and understand the book of Revelation. But I say that's okay. The main message of it's clear as day. The rest of it will be clear as day when it happens. Again, because these are lessons I usually teach in an hour and try to put them into a half an hour, I have gone over yet again. So, And also, since I uh, can't play the piano and also receive you at the altar, we are going to, I'm going to pray and close our service and we'll be dismissed to Sunday school. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that your word, as it comes in different ways, is still you speaking to us. And I pray, God, that we would be good readers of your word and take the extra time to understand how to read these different genres, types of literature in your word. More than that, Lord, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, make it clear to us what your word is, and that we would live it out in our life. Bless us now, Lord, as we do go to Sunday school and we dig into your word again. As we do, Lord, I pray we would be uh, knowledgeable of what type of literature we're reading and then live it out in our life. Bless us this week, Lord, as we live for you. Bless us with your peace, with your joy, your mercy, and your grace. And I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You're dismissed.